Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni and this is the FDI podcast. Today we will discuss one of the most fascinating, yet somehow obscure aspect of foreign investment, bilateral investment treaties. Bilateral investment treaties, or BATs, are one of the main features of the international investment regime. They grant foreign investors special rights to bypass courts in host countries to seek compensation for risks like discrimination or expropriation before international investment tribunals. Hundreds of bilateral investment treaties have been signed in the past 30 years, but only recently many countries, mostly developing countries, have come to gauge the real reach of BAT protection provisions as the number of investor state disputes quickly soared and so did the volume and value of the compensations awarded by international tribunals. And this might be only the tip of the iceberg since most of these proceedings remain largely confidential. Their reach, as well as their secretive nature, turned BATs into a highly contentious issue, prompting countries like India to propose a new BAT model with less constraining protection provisions, or others like South Africa or Indonesia to terminate their BATs altogether. Western countries are also gradually coming to terms with the protection granted by BATs. Spain, for example, has been subject to dozens of claims in the past years, mostly for Madrid's decision to withdraw public subsidies for renewable energy developers. Canada is also facing more than 20 arbitrations under the provisions included in the NAFTA trade deal. And law firms are now even testing the waters to bring claims against the United Kingdom for Brexit and its consequences on foreign investors. Many of these issues have been extensively treated in a book that came out just a few weeks back called The Political Economy of Investment Treaties, authored by three academics, Jonathan Bonicia, Lauge Poulsen and Michael Webel. Lauge Poulsen, senior lecturer in international political economy at the University College of London and one of the authors of the book is here with us today. Logan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. So you have been studying this issue for, uh, for a few years now and uh, probably you agree with me this is a fascinating universe and I particularly enjoyed the section of your book about the politics of uh, bilateral investment treaties. So let me just uh, begin with a pretty simple question. Why do sovereign countries entering agreements that somehow restrict their limit, their sovereignty, by allowing foreign investors to, to, to bypass local courts. Yeah, I think there are, there are different reasons for different countries. Um, many developed countries, including the UK, signed up to investment treaties to provide protections to their foreign investors when they ventured abroad into risky jurisdictions. Uh, for developing countries, uh, it's more difficult um, perhaps to, to understand why they would subject themselves to um, such constraints on their regulatory autonomy by signing up to these agreements. But also here, there's a sort of wide range of reasons why developing countries have signed up to them. Um, in some cases, there are political reasons, but the main justification for the vast majority of developing countries was that they expected that by signing up to investment treaties, they would become more attractive for foreign investors. So they sort of made a bargain. They would sort of restrict their regulatory autonomy, but then in return, they expected more foreign investment to come. Right. So... Um before uh, trying to figure out whether or not this has been a successful strategy for these countries, um, let me ask you this. Were they fully aware of uh, what, they're, uh, what they were doing when they signed up to these uh, treaties with a uh, country, mostly Western countries? So that's a good question. I spent about seven years, long, sad years of my life trying to address that very question and wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. Um, and again, the answer varies. Some developing countries were well aware 
of what they were doing. They had good negotiators, uh, experienced teams that took these agreements seriously. Um, they, of course, couldn't predict that there was going to be an explosion in investment treaty arbitration um, over the last couple of decades. But nevertheless, with the information available at the time, they took these obligations quite seriously. But they were probably the exception. Uh, the vast majority of developing countries often entered into investment treaties up through the 1980s and 1990s in a rather haphazard way. You, you got a good story uh, on Pakistan, uh, right? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's sort of a, a bunch of, of interesting anecdotes about how developing countries entered into the agreements. In the case of Pakistan, I did some work there. Um, Investment treaties were negotiated um, since the late 1950s. In fact, Pakistan was the first country to ever end, ever enter into a BIT. But with Germany, right? With Germany, exactly. Um, but for the most part, um, officials negotiating them um, saw them not so much as potent legal instruments for foreign investors. Rather, they saw them as sort of political instruments, um, sort of diplomatic tokens of goodwill. Uh, so when Pakistani Uh, ministers or presidents would go abroad, they would receive foreign guests coming to Islamabad, they would sign a long raft of agreements, cultural collaboration agreements, sports collaboration agreements, agreements that had no real practical implications whatsoever, but were primarily signed sort of for the press, right, to, to display diplomatic goodwill. And typically, Pakistan would agree to sign also an investment treaty on those occasions because... If, if you recall, you didn't mention this in your introduction, but investment treaties are incredibly short documents for the most part. They're six to seven pages, right. which in very vague and broad terms, primarily just say that foreign investors have to be treated fairly and equitably and you shouldn't expropriate without compensation. And at the height of the Washington consensus, very few developing countries, including Pakistan, thought there was anything wrong or uh, suspicious in signing up to those sorts of documents. So they would sign them up or sign, sign this dotted line without any real negotiation uh, or legal input into the process whatsoever. And it was not until Pakistan became subject to some large and controversial claims that they realized that what they thought were diplomatic tokens of goodwill were in fact some of the most potent legal instruments underwriting economic globalization. Now that's an extreme case, but many other developing countries also signed the treaties in, in less than rational ways, should we say. Right, so before getting to the, the, the most controversial uh, part of this whole uh, uh, subject, so uh, let's get back to, to the FDI attraction strategies. So uh, where actually Uh, this uh, for, uh, bilateral investment treaty is functional to for you know, developing countries uh, to attract uh, for for their ambitions of attracting more foreign investment. Yeah, so there's a lot of people that has been that have been trying to to study that question over the last decade or so, and and we do know of instances where foreign investors have relied on investment treaties when making important decisions about where and how much to invest abroad. Um, so there's no doubt that in some cases. Uh, investment projects have depended critically on whether or not there was an investment treaty in place. Um, but that is, has typically been for certain types of investors and certain types of investment projects, right? So we'd, we would typically expect investment treaties to be relevant for very large investors because the cost of investment treaty arbitration is just such that very few small or medium-sized investors would really uh, have sort of a... a, 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 a a reasonable chance of ever being able to use investment treaty arbitration to protect their investments. So we would typically expect 
these to be relevant for large investors. And we would also primarily expect the agreements to be relevant in sectors like utilities or natural resources where you make large, long-term investments that are difficult to pull out after you've made them. And therefore, you expose yourself to quite significant political risk, particularly when you invest in, in yeah. some developing countries. So for those types of investors, occasionally, the treaties make a tangible difference. But for the vast majority of foreign investment decisions, the treaties are probably... Uh, not that important, if at all, for decisions about where and how much uh, to invest. And how, how do I know that? Well, we know that from, from surveys, right? So you've had a number of surveys of foreign investors asking them, well, to what extent do you actually incorporate these treaties into your decision when you decide where and how much to invest? And most of these surveys show that the vast majority of foreign investors do not rely on these agreements. And, and, and a core reason for that, apart from the fact that investment treaty arbitration is costly and often uncertain, right. is that when you're exposed to political risks as a foreign investor and you don't have an investment treaty in place, you still have a range of other uh, mechanisms through which you can protect uh, your investment or mitigate political risk. You have political risk insurance available. You have investor state contracts you can negotiate, which are typically negotiated in the same sectors in which investment treaties are relevant, namely in utilities and natural resources. And then you have sort of a range of market-based uh, mechanisms through which you can uh, mitigate political risk. And this is something you sort of you teach in business schools, but it's sort of a long-winded answer to say yeah. that even in the absence of an investment treaty, foreign investors still options. have ways in which they can protect themselves against political risk, which means that it's only quite rare that the absence of investment treaty will mean that there's going to be less foreign investment right. uh, into that particular uh, country. But it does happen on occasion. And I what you're saying is kind of well reflected in a statistics of the non-arbitration uh, cases that have been uh, initiated so far over the last uh, 20, 30 years, where we clearly see that uh, the, the investors that file the most uh, claims against the host states, they mostly come from uh, utility sector, power sector, extractive sector like mining and oil, so where there is a big uh, sunk, uh, uh, where there is sunk in capital that cannot be recovered. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, this, these are not the only sectors um, uh, in which you have claims and investment treaties cover a very, very wide right. range of investments and you have claims in, in, in a wide range of sectors as well. But the predominant number of claims are in those sectors. And also, while you do have examples of small and medium-sized enterprises filing cases, um, the main benefits from the regime uh, go to large or very large investors. Right. So let me ask you this. So BAT is, in, at least in the developing world, um, they, they have become very controversial. And I think that one of the main reasons why they become so controversial is that there is a perception that uh, Western investors have got the upper hand in the arbitration tribunals. Uh, they can pick up the better uh, the better arbitrators and uh, they, 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 can, uh, they, they, they can easily... Uh, face the costs of the and the length of arbitration processes uh, so uh, but is there any real evidence that this is uh, this is actually the case it's a difficult question i think as a starting point it's important to stress that many developing countries have fared quite well uh, in investment treaty arbitration um, they have won many of their cases. Mm -hmm. uh, investors have not always won, in fact, far from it. And many investors have been told by tribunals that um, their cases were frivolous, should never have been brought in the first place. And investors have walked away from investment treaty arbitration with nothing but sort of high legal bills. Uh, so it's not the case that this is sort of a, a free-for-all for multinational firms and other foreign investors. Um, one. Two, I think there's a... There's one part of that debate which is 
um, which is particularly relevant. And, and, and that is uh, the following proposition. Some people argue, many critics argue, and increasingly a number of states argue, that when you have very vague treaties, then it matters a great deal who sits on the tribunals to interpret vague and broadly drafted provisions like, for instance, a provision like fair and equitable treatment. Right. What does right. that actually mean? Well, mean that depends sort of what you think is fair and what is equitable. It depends on your underlying norms about, for instance, sanctity of contract or the right balance between the interests of investors and the interests of states to regulate in the public interest. And when you look at the individuals that sit on investment treaty tribunals, it is notable that a very large share of them come from private uh, practice and often have a background in commercial law. So one argument made by critics is that those sorts of individuals may have fundamentally different norms about the right balance between investors' uh, rights and the rights of states than say, judges or, say, governments or, uh, or of other sorts of official stakeholders. So the question of whether or not that is then evidence of bias, I don't know. That's really very, very difficult to assess. Um, there's sort of a growing number of researchers trying to address that, but there is at least a perception of bias, and that's important. Whether it's right or wrong is, is a difficult question, but there's a political perception of bias in the investment treaty regime, and that has really important material implications for the politics of the and regime. Sometimes perception is reality, as they exactly. say. Exactly. So because, as, yeah, as, exactly. It, as it is the case, for example, with countries that I mentioned at the beginning with India or South Africa and Indonesia. So what's happening there? So India uh, terminated uh, most of its uh, uh, bilateral investment treaties uh, in February, and they are trying. Uh, they are now trying to 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 push, uh, to lobby for a new BIT model, which somehow tries tries to strike a better balance between uh, the rights and obligation between host state and uh, foreign investor. Whereas, as mentioned, Indonesia and uh, South Africa just terminated their BA existing BITs altogether and are not willing to 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 access new uh, treaties uh, of 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 this kind. So, what what's happening there? Well, I. There are different things happening, right? Because it depends on what country we're talking about. Um, the the policies in in developing countries towards investment treaties today differ a great deal. So you have you've already mentioned South Africa, and Indonesia, but you could also go to Latin America, where you've had Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador reacting very strongly and at least partly withdrawing from the investment treaty regime. And there, the story is partly political. There's sort of a, a backlash against multinational firms and globalization more broadly, at least in a country like Venezuela. So, so it sort of would make sense why they would also react against investment treaties and investment treaty arbitration. But the, but the story in a country like India is, is different. Um, there, the Indian government is still inviting foreign investors to submit claims against the Indian government in front of international tribunals. But in their new model, they just say, while you can do that, you first have to at least try to go through domestic courts yeah, to resolve the dispute, right, for up to five years. And, of course, that will increase the costs for, uh, for, for resolving investor state disputes, so foreign investors won't be particularly happy about it. But on the other hand, uh, many would probably argue it's not a particularly controversial proposition that foreign investors, like everyone else, have to at least partly try and rely on domestic courts before they take their case uh, to an international tribunal. We see that in the European uh, Convention of Human Rights as well. If you and I want to pursue an expropriation claim under the European Convention of Human Rights, we can do 
do that in front of the European Court of Human Rights, right. but first we have to try and resolve it through domestic courts. And other countries are doing different things. So Brazil has a new type of investment treaty model as well. Um, Poland is pursuing different policies. The European Union is pursuing different policies. Right. So there's sort of a, a, a growing experimentation that we're seeing in the investment treaty regime. And to me, that's not surprising, actually. What is surprising to me is that it hasn't started earlier. This is very, very late in the day. This is more than 50 years after the first investment treaty that countries have sort of started to try and experiment with fundamentally new investment treaty models. Whereas in the past, almost without exception, uh, countries of vastly different social, economic, institutional backgrounds signed up to the same template time and again for decades that was based on a model that was developed by the OECD in the 1960s. And it's not until now that countries are sort of starting to say, well, maybe it's time to try and rebalance some of these rights or try and think of new ways in which these disputes should be settled on the basis of what we've learned from the rise of investment treaty arbitration. Yeah. Also, I think that the geopolitics involving uh, bilateral investment treaties is uh, quickly changing. Uh, as developing countries, they grow and they, 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 they become not only recipient of foreign capital, but also biggest Supporters of uh, capital. Let's see. Let, let's think, of, for example, of uh, of China, but also India has, has, has had growing uh, outflows of capital. Um, this 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 creates also like bigger room for uh, these countries or like investors from this country to bring uh, uh, claims against uh, uh, Western countries because this BIT is obviously one of their characteristics that obviously they are reciprocal. Um, and we've seen, like may- maybe almost surprisingly, over the last uh, over the past few years, uh, big claims brought against uh, Spain, for example, as mentioned at the beginning, but also Germany uh, for its decision to to interrupt abruptly after the Fukushima disaster in Japan is a uh, nuclear development program. Um, so, do you think that, that this is a trend that is uh, will continue uh, in the next few years? Yeah, I think. Um I mean, you're right in the sense that these agreements are reciprocal. But initially, when they were negotiated, they were only really reciprocal in theory. In practice, they were a one-way street. You had investments going from the UK to Pakistan and Indonesia, and those were the investments that were protected because you had hardly an investment going the other way. But when you have investment going the other way, then, of course, the protections also can be used by Indonesian and Pakistani investors uh, in the UK. Does that mean we're going to see an explosion of claims against, for instance, the UK government? Probably not. I mean, the UK already has investment treaties with significant sources of foreign investment like Singapore. That doesn't mean you have tons of claims by Singaporean investors against the UK government. We are also party to the Energy Charter Treaty, uh, but that doesn't mean that the UK government has been subject to large amounts of claims on the Energy Charter Treaty by German or Swedish uh, investors. Uh, But some claims will be brought and maybe some of those claims will, will, will be won by investors as well. At least that's the experience from other developed countries like you mentioned Spain, Canada as well, and Germany has had to uh, respond to some controversial claims as well where they haven't been lost, but they've had to change some of the regulatory policies in order to avoid the pursuit of, 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 of some of these claims. And should we expect the same thing to happen against the UK? Probably. Uh, will the UK lose a large number of claims? Uh, probably not, because the vast majority of cases deal with regulatory and legislative measures that would anyway be illegal as a matter of UK law. Um, But we have seen examples of even advanced industrialized states having lost cases that were deemed 
uh, where the regulatory measures in question were deemed to have been legal as a matter of domestic law. Uh, we've sort of seen that in Spain, for instance, where the Spanish Constitutional Court and Supreme Court had deemed some of the measures you already mentioned in the, in the renewable energy sector to have been legal as a matter of Spanish law, yet the investment treaty tribunal said they were illegal as a matter of international right. investment law. And if that can happen to Spain, uh, surely it can happen to the UK as mm. well. Well, obviously you mentioned the UK, so it's time uh, for... Uh, the Brexit question, the Brexit you know, question, you know yeah. it will come your way at some point. Uh, so the, the, there has been, uh, the, here in London, there have been already a few seminars of uh, loafers, but also uh, academics trying to figure out whether or not the UK will be uh, liable for uh, uh, breaching uh, uh, bilateral investment treaties as a consequence of uh, any possible uh, Brexit deal. Um, so... What's your what's your take here? Do you see that there is really a room there for uh, for investors to to bring claims against the the, the UK government uh, as a consequence of the Brexit referendum? Well, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So, if we put ourselves in the shoes of a say a large car company that has invested in the UK on the assumption that it can access the European market and its based supply chain on that basis. Or if you put ourselves in the shoes of a large financial institution or bank that's established itself in the city of London under the assumption that it would have passporting rights to uh, service the European market. And let's assume there is not going to be a deal and the UK is going to tumble out of the European Union and now uh, there's not going to be any access to the single market and we're going to have to trade in WTO terms and that's going to impose very significant costs on these sorts of investors. Well, then um, their legal counsel might say that uh, while it's entirely legitimate for the British government to leave the EU and there's nothing illegal about it as a matter of international law, yes, yeah. there, are certain, there are certain international obligations under investment law to pay compensation to foreign investors uh, who uh, have significant losses as a result of those decisions. So they might argue that provisions on fair and equitable treatment or indirect expropriation, for instance, uh, could provide the basis uh, for a claim. And some experts in investment law within the investment arbitration community are making those sorts of arguments and are probably also advising their clients accordingly. Yeah. But others disagree. Right. Uh, you have other experts in international investment law who don't really think that there is um, sort of a significant risk of, of investors winning those sorts of claims. Who's right? I don't know. But it's an important point in it by itself because the fact that reasonable people with expertise in the field disagree means that potentially tribunals may Correct. disagree as well. Yeah. And even if one tribunal says that the UK government should not pay compensation for its Brexit deal or the absence of a Brexit deal, other tribunals may disagree. And um, we have known from past investment treaty claims that tribunals occasionally take inconsistent decisions, occasionally even contradictory decisions on the basis of the same set of facts, same set of treaties and so forth. So, so it's difficult to say, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Right. It would depend whether there's an investment treaty in place, of course, the, the nature of the deal, whether any specific uh, promises have been made to those sorts of investors. Um, but it might be a headache down the line. All right. Well, Log, thank you very much for your time, for your comments. Uh, tell us uh, where where can we find your book, The, the Political Economy of Investment Treaty Regime. That, uh, again, you authored with uh, Jonathan Bonicia and uh, Michael Webler. Uh, was published by the Oxford University Press, where people can uh, can find it. They can find it there, and they can find it on Amazon.
Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thanks, everybody, for, for listening. Uh, you can find this episode and all the other episodes of the FDI podcast on uh, fdiintelligence.com slash podcast and on any other major uh, podcast platforms like uh, ACAS or iTunes. Thanks for listening again. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 